Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. You know where to turn. <laughs> Book of Jude, please. So we uh, have uh, mentioned before that uh, the Book of Jude falls into two main sections. There's a lot of ways you could divide the book up. I chose to do it very simply. Uh, a, a call to action against apostasy, verses 3 through 19, and then a command to Christians to live faithfully, verses 20 to 23. And there, of course, are subpoints to each of those. But So the first main point, a call to action against apostasy. And in verses 3 and 4, uh, Christians are, uh, are commanded to contend earnestly for the faith. Let me read verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. When Jude said that he had intended to write concerning our common salvation, not that he was saying salvation is a common thing. It's what we have in common, all right, as Christians. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, he was talking about the, the simple truths you know, not not the controversial stuff. I'm talking about the, the, the basic truths of the Christian faith that all Christians agree on. I don't care if you're a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Calvary Chapel person. Uh, and that is that God so loved us all that he gave his only begotten son, uh, that he died for our sins that we might be saved. And the idea is that, you know, we all believe that uh, apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. He's the only way to the Father, and we rejoice in the love of God. We rejoice in how that by His grace, He has adopted us into His family. You know, guys, these are the truths that, you know, I'd rather talk about uh, as a pastor, truths that bind all Christians together in sweet fellowship. However, even though that was what Jude wanted to write to these believers about, that's what he intended to write to them about he was instead compelled by the Holy Spirit to deal with a spiritual cancer that had infiltrated into the local churches, a cancer called apostasy. Now, once again, let me define what biblical apostasy is all about. An apostate is someone who claimed at one point to be a Christian, who continued in the faith for a while, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, and even sometimes years, although that's kind of rare. Uh, but then renounced the Christian faith and walked away from Christianity. So that's an apostate, all right? Now, even though these apostates walk away from the faith, they don't always walk away from the church. And that's really what we're looking at through Jude's epistle and as we have studied Peter and John. Um, here's the thing. They all were dealing with the same kind of thing. You had a lot of folks that were, of course, in the churches that were believers, the majority. But then you had some who were, uh, were, who were following teachers that were teaching them things that they thought were right on, they thought were deep and spiritual, but it was heresy. And the problem is that a lot of times people that walk away from the faith, they renounce the basic tenets of the Christian faith, they don't always walk away from the church, but remain as teachers and shepherds, pastors, although they teach false doctrines, so now they are false teachers and false shepherds. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, 
I must confess that I sympathize with Jude. In my own ministry, I would much rather encourage the saints than declare war on the apostates. Amen. But when the enemy is in the field, the watchmen dare not go to sleep. The Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. End quote. So once again, verse 3, Jude said, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The Greek word translated contend is a word we get our English words agony and agonize from. The Greek form of this word that Jude uses is, a, is very strong, hence earnestly contend or agonize greatly. The Greek is in the present tense, which means continually, continually. This word is often associated with an athlete, we'll say a marathon runner, who uh, at one point is agonizing, with, he's going through a lot, or she's going through a lot of pain, but keeps pressing forward. The Christian life is not easy if it's done right. If you really are running the race as if to win. I mean, going all out. It's not an easy thing because we have an adversary, the devil, who is not playing games, who's very serious. He wants to take us out of the race. He wants to get us to drop out, either through sin or discouragement or whatever it might be. And uh, we have to sometimes agonize to keep going forward. The problem is a lot of Christians don't. They just give up, stay home. They, they, they drop out of the race. I'm not saying they've lost their salvation, but they're definitely not serving the Lord anymore. And uh, it's become too hard for them. And that's where we come in, to encourage the saints. We've got to encourage one another. You know, and as Paul said in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, you know, we have to stoop down and bear the burdens of the weak. Sometimes we have to take their backpack, like a soldier who's got a wounded comrade in the field, sometimes that soldier grabs his, his comrade, his, his fellow soldier's backpack, puts it on his back with his own, and helps this soldier to go forward because he's too weak at that point to go forward on his own. He needs a little help. Christian life is no different. As we have said many times, we are an army. Jesus Christ is our commanding officer. And uh, we need to understand that sometimes... We have brothers and sisters that get wounded in the warfare. It's not for us to come and stand over them and condemn them. We have to stoop down and help them up and give them support and help them walk while they heal. So earnestly contend, agonize greatly. Now, what are Christians to earnestly contend or agonize for where he doesn't, you know, he doesn't leave us hanging? He just says the faith, the faith. When Jude uses the definite article in front of the word faith, he's using faith as a noun, a noun, something that is, not as a verb, which means something we do as in exercising faith. No, it's different. Jude talks about the faith. When he says that, he's talking about the body of God's truth that we call New Testament doctrine. One pastor explained how we as believers in Christ contend for the faith. He said, and I quote, we contend for the faith in a positive sense when we give an unflinching witness. Okay, we're not, we don't back down. We give a bold witness, all right? We're proud of the fact that we know Jesus. It's all him, but we're proud of that. We're not backing down. We're not ashamed. When we distribute tracts, we'll say, make possible the training of 
faithful ambassadors for Jesus or when we strengthen the hands of faithful pastors who honor the word of God in their pulpits. These are a few among many ways that we can contend earnestly for the faith in a positive sense. We contend for the faith in a negative way when we withhold support and encouragement from false teachers. I would add, when we expose them, especially as a pastor exposing false teachers from the pulpit, I'm talking about heretics, is something that's part of our responsibility. We contend for the faith in a practical sense when we live uncompromisingly Christian lives and give credit to the Lord who has changed us. He concludes, Obviously, faithful missionaries and evangelists contend earnestly for the faith, but so does the Sunday school teacher or the, or the home group leader who is faithful to the scriptures. People like this contend for the faith just as much as a frontline missionary does, and each one of us should contend for the gospel wherever God puts us, end quote. So again, guys, the faith is the body of God's truth we call the New Testament, rooted in the gospel, of course, but encompassing the entire body of New Testament truth that the church in general, listen, and we in particular have built our faith and by extension our eternity upon. You remember what Paul said about the church. He called us the temple of the living God. And he said in Ephesians 2 verse 20, that the church has been built on the foundation, listen now, of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We need to be careful when we read Ephesians 2.20. We need to be careful not to interpret what Paul is saying here in a wrong way. He isn't saying that the apostles and prophets themselves were the actual foundation of the church. That would contradict other passages that clearly teach that Jesus himself is the foundation upon which the church has been built. I'll give you a couple examples of this. You can write them down. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Paul says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Remember in Matthew 16, when Jesus took the guys up to the area of Caesarea Philippi and at that point asked them, who do men say that I am? And they gave a variety of responses. Different people had different ideas about who he was, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, one of the other prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said in response to Peter's declaration, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are Peter, the Greek little stone. But upon this Petra, this large rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter was not the rock, I'm sorry, that Jesus built his church on. It was the declaration that Jesus Christ was no mere man. He was no simple prophet he was not the latest avatar come down the pike of human history to teach us spiritual truth he is unique among every person who has ever lived he is the god man and upon that reality that truth he was going to build his church jesus christ is the foundation upon which the church has been built so then what did paul mean 
when he said that the church was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. Well, very simply, guys, it means that the apostles and New Testament prophets were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And given God's revelation for the New Testament period, listen, the doctrine that the church is built upon. In Acts 2.42 we read, the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The word doctrine simply means teaching. This teaching is called the apostles' doctrine because it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, which means it's God's doctrine. It's His word. It's His truth given to the apostles who then taught it to the church. The apostles, as we have said before, moved around in a kind of itinerant way. Uh, They moved from place to place, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and uh, teaching the saints the doctrine they had received from God. Remember now, there's no New Testament at this point. It's being written as the church was going on, right? So, you know, they, they, you know, the apostles couldn't have a Bible study and say, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, because Paul hadn't given 1 Timothy 3 yet. <laughs> the chapters came much later. But, uh, you know, the epistle we call 1 Timothy. But the apostles moved around in more of an itinerant way, whereas the prophets, unlike the apostles, remained in one place ministering to the local congregations. Now, they also received some direct revelation from God. But for the most part, what they did was to explain and apply the doctrine the apostles had received from the Holy Spirit and passed on to the churches. The prophets acted uh, in the capacity of the pastor until pastors could be raised up. Remember now, the church has just started. And so we'll say when Paul went into an area, preached the gospel, a lot of people got saved, a church was started. But nobody was mature enough yet to be a pastor. They're all brand new Christians. So what they do? Well, first of all, they appointed the oldest men in the church as elders. Because they were elders, okay? They were elder saints. And the thinking was, the older, um, oldest among us has the most life experience, the most wisdom. So right now we're going to look to them to kind of, you know, because we're all brand new in the faith. So we'll look to them because they do bring something to the table in the way of maturity, that will help us, you know, walk with the Lord a little bit. And then God gave to the local churches these prophets. And they were just spokesmen for God. And again, they stayed more local. And what they did was they took the apostles' doctrine and they, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they taught it, they explained it, they applied it. And then eventually pastors uh, were raised up. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the church was built on a foundation of apostles and prophets. God used them to lay the doctrinal foundation the church was built on. You know, any of you guys who are into construction, if you're going to build a house, you lay the foundation. After the foundation was laid, you don't keep laying it. You move on to the building, right? And so that was the idea. Once God used the apostles and prophets to lay the foundation, eventually they passed off the seat. And I personally do not believe and there's a lot of churches that would disagree with me, I personally do not believe that the office of apostles and prophets are still around today. They have passed off the scene, and I look to Ephesians 2.20, uh, to, and of course, 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul's talking about leaders in the church, he doesn't mention apostles and prophets. He talks about pastors, elders, okay? Because the foundation had been laid, uh, the church had been given the New Testament canon of Scripture, the doctrine 
that became our New Testament that the church was built upon, and, and you get the idea. But, but Paul, when he talks about or uses the analogy of the church being the temple uh, of God, built on the revelation that God gave to the apostles and prophets, he quickly adds that Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone was a major structural part of ancient buildings. Can I just stop and say this? I've heard some pastors liken it to the capstone on a pyramid. I thoroughly reject that. First of all, pyramids are occultic. And God is not going to use an occultic symbol to get across the spiritual truth. But secondly, think about it. The capstone on a pyramid was the last thing that went on. It was basically for aesthetics. It served no real purpose except to complete the structure and add beauty to it. But it was, you know, you could have no capstone and it wouldn't affect the structure at all. If you're talking about a pyramid. A cornerstone was different, all right? Cornerstone was different. It was laid at the very corner of the building. It was the starting point. And in that regard, it had to be strong enough to support what was built on it, and it had to be precisely laid because every other part of the structure was lined up with it, integral. If the cornerstone, guys, was weak or defective, well, the entire structure would be in danger of collapsing. And if it was crooked, every other part of the building would be off kilter and out of alignment. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Listen. We know that Jesus is strong enough for the church to be built upon. He's God. He's God. That's why I cannot, well, I'm not going to pick on our Catholic friends. I, uh, but, but the Catholic Church teaches, which I was a part of, that the church is built on a man, Peter. God would never build something as important as his church on a man. Only Jesus is strong enough to have the church built upon him. He's God. We, we even sing. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Furthermore, we never need to worry about Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone being off. Being off. As God incarnate, he is always faithful and true. As long as the church is built on Jesus, not on some celebrity pastor, if I can just say that. As long as the church is built on Jesus and correctly aligned with his word, well... It will always be what God intended it to be, glorious and victorious. Satan knows this only too well. And so he knows the quickest way to destroy the local church is to destroy the foundation upon which it is built. Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And what he will do is, and he's done this quite effectively today, he has moved churches away from Christ. They wouldn't say this, and maybe they don't even realize they're doing this, but they are building their church on a personality, on a celebrity. Uh, you know, and everything is focused on this pastor, who is, again, this larger-than-life, celebrity-like figure. And everything is kind of directed at him. He's the focus. He's the foundation in many ways. But a lot of those churches don't end well, do they? Because no man can be what God wanted his church to be built. It has to be Jesus. Another way that what Satan is doing today is he is destroying the foundation of the church uh, by um, chipping away at the doctrines of the Bible. And I'm thinking primarily uh, Genesis 1 through 10. 
which forms the foundation for the rest of the Bible. For the rest of the Bible. It's amazing. The devil has really been picking away, uh, chipping away at the foundation of the church. You'd be shocked if I told you how many churches no longer believe that the Bible is inspired, that, that it doesn't have any errors. It's just amazing to me as you look at the church today and you see, you know, God's word has been under attack from the very beginning, right? Genesis 3, verse 1, the devil appeared to Eve in the form of a serpent. Here's what he said to her, okay? He said, did God really say? Now, God gave his word there in the garden. Right away, Satan comes and he attacks the word of God. Did God really say, trying to sow doubt in her mind as to what God really had said? Did God really say that? Or if he said it, do you really mean what you think he meant when he said it? I hear it today. Christians asking, or people asking Christians, um, did God really say he made the universe in six literal days? You sure it wasn't six one billion year periods? Because evolution is true. We know this. Scientists have proved it. No, they have not. No, they have not. Or did God really say that Jesus was the only way to heaven? I mean, think about this. I mean, you have Muslims who love the Lord and Buddhists who love the Lord and others who have sincere faith. You mean to tell me only Christians are going to get into heaven? And so Christians are starting to accommodate this. And I've heard some of the most crazy things. Some would say, well, well, God, he looks at the heart. And if a person doesn't really believe in Jesus but has sincere faith in what they do believe, God will accept that. Others realize, no, you can't square that with the Bible. So, um, you know, so here's what. If God looks into the heart of the Buddhist or the Muslim, and, and they have a sincere faith uh, in what they believe, because it's all about having sincere faith, right? No, not really. It's all about having the right faith. But there, I've heard some say, and you'd be shocked at the names, that God will take the blood of Christ, even if they never heard of Jesus, and apply it to their account, and they're going to be saved. Or did God really say homosexuality was a sin? Now, come on. There's a lot of wonderful homosexual gays, lesbians. They're Christians. We got one runner for president. Openly gay, married to a man who believes that God made him that way. And he can be a Christian because God made me this way. Who told you God made you that way? He ripped Vice President Pence all over the place, who is a devout Christian, because... Vice President Pence said that homosexuality was a sin. Well, the vice president is being faithful. He's contending earnestly for the faith. Not a popular position, but God bless him. He speaks the truth. And Mayor Buttigieg, who was running for president, came out and ripped the vice president apart by saying, you know, who is he to tell me uh, that what I am is not right. God made me this way. Well, I would have said, well, who told you God made you that way? Because in both the Old and New Testaments, homosexuality is condemned by God. He loves homosexuals, but homosexuality, practicing homosexuals, that's an abomination in the sight of God. He makes it very clear. Now, you can come up with your own examples of what I'm talking about, right? Uh, they're out there, and um, the devil is trying to attack uh, the, uh, the foundation, the truth of God's word, the doctrinal foundation that our faith and the church of Jesus Christ has been built upon, and he's actually been quite successful, quite successful. I've never seen as much confusion. We're professing Christians no longer hold to the tenets 
that Christians have held to for centuries. Everything is being redefined, uh, reinterpreted. Uh, one well-known speaker that speaks at gigantic Christian conferences said that we need to have a five-year moratorium and the church needs to not talk against homosexuality for five years so we can pray about it and seek God and find out what he has to really say on the subject. I think he's, he said it. I don't think we have to take a five-year moratorium and, 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 and find out what God really said. It's in the Word. Very clear. And so we can see why Jude is so concerned that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, as soldiers, keep fighting against Satan's lies as we earnestly contend for the faith, which God committed to his church, listen, for preservation and faithful dissemination. Listen to what Paul said talking about he got how God has um, entrusted his truth to the church for our preservation. We, we are to guard it, right? Something that's... If I told you, uh, here, I've got a suitcase full of gold. Can you watch it for me? Because I, 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 I've got to go, so I can't take it with me, right? I mean, I wouldn't just leave it on a street corner. I'd have so, It's valuable, right? I'd have somebody guard it. When you have something that's valuable, you have it guarded. God has given to his church his truth, the truth that can set men and women free from their captivity to the devil. It can bring light into the darkness. It can, you know, it can set the captives free. It is very valuable, and God entrusted it to his church for our safekeeping, preservation. Paul said to Timothy, a young pastor, uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14, hold fast the pattern, listen, of sound words that's another way of saying new testament truth which you have heard from me in faith and love which which are in christ jesus that good thing that treasure in earthen vessels that's us the earthen vessel god has placed his treasure his gospel his word in our hearts that good thing which was committed to you keep by the holy spirit who dwells in you first timothy 6 verses 20 and 21 O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. See, in the first century, as there has been through every century, there was the truth of God and then the lies of the devil that came against the truth of God, right? It's always been that way. You have God's truth and all these godless ideologies, uh, read again 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Our warfare and what we've been, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not physical, but they are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds, right? Well, we come against every high and lofty, the Greek is ideology that exalts itself against the true knowledge of God. And by God's truth, our weapons, prayer and the word of God, we tear down these lofty prisons, what they are, and set the captives free. I just read an article two days ago about an atheist who was raised in an atheistic home, uh, very much into science, and he became a scientist and looked down on Christians, laughed at the Bible, but never had read it. Never had read it, like a lot of people, right? And so the Holy Spirit was working, so one day he decides to go to a church service because he's never actually been to one. He was shocked at how kind, heard that Christians were bigoted, uh, cruel, and you know, and, and shocked at how kind and Nice everybody was. Listen to the pastor's message, and it was thoughtful and intelligent. 
and persuasive. So he starts reading the Bible. And out of his own mouth, he says, and I felt like the prison door was beginning to open. Eventually, he became a Christian. Now him and his wife are very involved in their church. I thought, that's, that's exactly what happened. You were taken captive by the devil and imprisoned in a false ideology. Science, which is not a false ideology unless you, you get into evolution. I mean, science is, means knowledge. It's the observation of things in the real world. That's fine. It's not wrong to observe, but when you extrapolate from observation to then uh, understanding and application, uh, often you move into the realm of scientism, which is not science at all. It's a faith system. Evolution is a faith system. You only have two systems out there, really. You have, uh, you have um, theism. Theism, of course, is the belief that God made everything, creationism. And then, of course, you have atheism. Uh, one of the major tenets is evolution, explaining everything apart from God. I'm getting off my notes here, but okay. But this is what we're battling. This is what we're fighting. And this is why we have decided to take just a little extra time at the beginning here, because he, he's addressing Christians at the beginning directly. He challenges us and admonishes us to then you know, fight for the truth against apostates, and he gets, starts giving examples. But... We, uh, he says, guard what was committed to you. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. The faith. Even Christians can be misled. If they're not in a church that is really grounding them in the word, the church just gives the word, the Bible kind of lip service, and it doesn't really ground them in, in the truths of God's word, the New Testament I'm talking about primarily, they're going to be carried away by winds of doctrine. Whether it's secularism, whether it's some kind of a, a, a different kind of a religious-sounding thing, that's why it's up to us as pastors to teach the saints diligently. That's our job. And then let the Holy Spirit use what He's given to you in your heart to lead you into areas of ministry. Of course, Mark 16, 15. You take what you learn and go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. That's our responsibility. So guys, as we come to the main section of Jude's epistle, remember that even though he primarily had apostates in mind when he wrote his epistle, his comments would apply to anyone in the church that teaches false doctrine. All false doctrine, guys, is dangerous and does damage to a person's faith. Sometimes it's irreparable damage that could lead them away from God for years and listen, sometimes even for the rest of their life. That is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 15, in other places, beware of false teachers. Beware of false doctrine. It is not harmless. It is harmful. It does damage to a person's faith, to their walk, to their relationship with God. And sometimes it can cripple them for years. And sometimes it can take them out of the race for the rest of their lives. I was at a pastor's conference years ago, a little get-together actually. Cindy was with me. And um, one of the pastors in the area had kind of called for a little gathering. And, and, uh, and he, we each had to kind of go around the room and just give a quick uh, testimony. And, uh, you know, I was brand new in ministry, brand new as a pastor, and I was still feeling kind of guilty I didn't have a degree. And so I kind of, you know, 
basically expressed that to everybody. I know I, God called me. I didn't really have any degree, and I'm you know, and and, and I was kind of apologizing for God calling me and I'm not having a degree. And and, and after I got done, uh, guys would raise their hand to give a little input. One guy stood up and said, "Phil, thank God you didn't go to seminary." He said, "I went, and it took me years to get my head on straight." Thank God you just went right to the Word, and the Holy Spirit was your teacher. Because I'm telling you, there's a lot of garbage out there, and it brainwashes young men. I've seen guys come into seminary that were on fire for the Lord, and by the time they left, they were just a shell of their former self, completely uh, taken over by the ideologies they, uh, they were taught, and uh, no fire, no passion, no spirit. Spirit had departed their ministry. So again, under this first subpoint, Christians contend earnestly for the faith. There is a lot at stake, is the idea. Verse 3 again, Beloved, I was, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The idea is it was once for all, all time, and for all generations delivered to the saints. In other words, guys, the same New Testament truth that God delivered to the apostles, who then gave it to the church, listen, never expires or needs to be revised or updated. Aren't you glad when you walk into a Christian bookstore and walk over to the Bible section, you don't see a Bible that says newly expanded and updated? We have the truth that was once for all time committed to the saints, the church. Bottom line is there is no new revelation for a new generation. It's all the same truth. And I say that because you do have churches that hold to the idea that God is doing a new thing and he's giving new revelation to his church. This Bible you have in your lap, that's kind of outdated, you know, kind of they, they say. It's, kind of, it's outdated. I mean, you know, how can you expect truth that was, you know, relevant to them 2,000 years ago, you know, who were farmers and ranchers? I mean, we live in a modern society, all kinds of complex problems, and God is doing a new thing, and therefore he's giving us new truth. No, that's of the devil. That is totally of the devil. It's his way, again, at chipping away at the foundation the church was built on and trying to lay some new foundation which can never support the church, Christians. Of course, one of the foundations that's been relayed that the church is being built upon today is psychology, the wisdom of man. It's no wonder that Christians have perpetual problems because they're not turning to the wonderful counselor and his word because their problems go beyond the simplistic truths in the Bible. They need something profound and deep. And, and they find it in some counselor's office that has degrees all over his or her wall. It's all the wisdom of man, though. One author put it well. He said, and I quote, Once means that the faith was delivered one time and doesn't need to be delivered again. Of course, we distribute this truth again and again. We pass out tracts. We share the gospel, right? But it was delivered by God to the world through the apostles and prophets once, Ephesians 2.20. God may speak today, 
but never in the authoritative way that he spoke through the first apostles and prophets as recorded in the New Testament, end quote. I'm not saying that there aren't people that God speaks through. I'm, hope, I'm one of them, hopefully. I believe in the gift of prophecy where God can speak through a, a Christian. But it's always truth that pertains to that person's life individually. It's not doctrine. We have all the doctrine we're going to receive. It's called the New Testament. It's called the New Testament canon of Scripture. The word canon simply means, again, uh, that which God has delivered, we know it's inspired. And this, what we call the body of truth, we call the New Testament canon, uh, has been given to the church. It's done now. God is not giving any more doctrine. Although I believe he's still speaking into Christians' lives individually, directing them, guiding them, encouraging them. The Bible says that he was the gift of prophecy. It's for edification, exhortation, and comfort, but not for new revelation, not for new doctrine, okay? Jude, verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were earnestly content for the faith, why could certain men have crept into the church unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude wastes no time in identifying the enemy. He first of all says that they're ungodly. That's a favorite word of Jude, by the way. Verse 15, he goes berserk with it. Okay. The word godly is short for God-like. God-like. People in the church who teach false doctrine, which are lies are not godlike they are ungodlike or ungodly in that god is a god of truth and his word is truth those who are like god teach it faithfully and listen would never twist his word into lies to deceive peter warned us about these deceivers who second peter 1 excuse me second peter 3:16 who twist the scriptures to their own destruction as they do with all of God's word. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. Very familiar section. Deals with the last days. As you read this, think of the evening news or the morning paper. This is it. This is what we're living right now. I'll read it to you out of the NLT, 2 Timothy 3, starting with verse 1, NLT 2nd edition. Paul said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, spiritually speaking, for Christians. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Verse 8. These teachers now, talking about the false teachers that will be around in this period of time where they're here with us uh, in our day. 
These teachers oppose the truth. Now, he's talking about folks in the church. They have a form of godliness. They profess to be Christians. Uh, like as I said, apostates don't always, they always leave the faith. They don't always leave the church. And so these teachers oppose the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, two of Pharaoh's magicians that uh, Moses withstood uh, when he went to Pharaoh. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this deception for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as they did with Janus and Jambres. So first of all, guys, these false teachers were ungodly. Secondly, they're deceitful. Verse 4 again, For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Crept into the church unnoticed. The Greek word means to slip in secretly, to sneak in undercover. That's why they're deceptive. They're deceitful. They come looking like Christians, dressed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are wolves, ravenous wolves whose purpose is to destroy. Peter warned that these men were coming. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter said, But there were also false prophets among the people in God's, among God's people in the Old Testament, even as there will be false teachers among you in the church age, who will, here it is, secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Destructive heresies literally means teachings that will destroy a person in hell forever. Folks, there are non-destructive heresies. In other words, teachings that are wrong, but will not damn a person to hell if believed. I believe that the Word of Faith movement is a heresy. It's a heretical movement. Now, can you be in the Word of Faith? Can you believe that God has ordained that every Christian be healthy and prosperous. Uh, can you believe that and still go to heaven? Of course. It's going to greatly impact your effectiveness for the Lord on the earth, though, because if you're busy focusing on laying up treasures on the earth and not laying up treasures in heaven, your effectiveness for God is going to be greatly diminished. You might wind up with treasures on earth. You'll enter heaven as a pauper, bankrupt. So yeah, it's going to affect you, not keep you out of heaven. Again, Peter warned that these false teachers would infiltrate the church under the guise many times as good shepherds and secretly bring in destructive, or in other words, damning heresies. This has always baffled me because, you know, Jesus warned that false prophets were coming. Paul told us they were coming. Peter warned us they were coming. Jude said they're here and that they crept into the church unnoticed what has always confused me is how did these false teachers creep into the church unnoticed when christians back then had been given so many clear warnings that they were coming the only thing i can think of is because gullible and undiscerning pastors and church leaders who were looking for what works quote unquote or something new novel okay to bring people in the doors or who were simply taken in by the cult of personality. A lot of these false teachers are very charming, charismatic, and let's be honest, cool. A lot of them are cool, okay? I don't, not one of those, but I'm not a false teacher, okay? Uh, it's just amazing, though, that people will get caught up with the external. 
with the outward appearance, you know, the charm, the coolness, and for some reason that lowers their guard against a potential false teacher, false prophet, okay? Very sad. The idea is that the church was infested or infiltrated by these false teachers, these apostates, these heretics, because the gatekeepers, who are the pastors and church leaders, were not, were not discerning and were not being vigilant. How many places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and, and throughout the New Testament, have we been warned to be vigilant? To be vigilant, right? I mean, to be watching. I mean, the church, and Paul says it in Romans 13, the church, for the most part, has gone to sleep in the light. But it's high time to wake out of sleep. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, thank God for churches that are banging the drum, sounding, ringing the bell, wake up, wake up. And they're doing it by teaching prophecy. That's how uh, the devil has lulled many asleep in the church, though, because the pastors think prophecy is too controversial. It makes people uncomfortable, so we don't touch it. We don't go there. I've had people say to me, have you guys studied the book of Revelation in your church? Yeah, we're about to study it again in a couple of years. Um, no, just teasing. Eight months at the most. Uh, and, 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 and they've said to me, our, our pastor never talks about it. He never mentioned, never teaches out of the book of Revelation. You know, it starts out with a promise that in this book, for those that read it, and understand it, there's a blessing. We'll talk about that when we get there. But one author put it this way, said, how could false brethren get into true assemblies of the saints, into true churches? Well, the soldiers had gone to sleep at the post. The spiritual leaders in the churches had grown complacent and careless. This explains why Jude had to, quote-unquote, blow the trumpet to wake them up. Our Lord and his apostles all warned that false teachers would arise. Yet the churches did not heed the warning. Sad to say, some churches, I would say many churches, are not heeding the warnings even today. End quote. You know, Jesus warned us. The enemy, the devil, would sow tares among the wheat, right? Turn to Matthew 13. And you all know it. Let me, let me just read it to you, though, quickly. Matthew 13, starting with verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, later Jesus explains this parable, verse 38. He said, The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Jesus told us that the devil would come sowing tares in the church. He said, but don't try to identify the tares lest you rip out some of the wheat. It's not for me to know what's in a person's heart with regard to their faith. If they claim to be a Christian and they come to church and they read the Bible, I'm going to assume they are a Christian, unless I see fruit to the contrary. But Christians have done a lot of damage when they've gone around to young or carnal Christians and said, you must be an unbeliever because you still smoke cigarettes. Get out of our church. Or you do this or you do that. You know, and, and it's just a shame because 
we don't know at what level of maturity a person is at. I remember my pastor telling a story about uh, somebody came into the church and said, Pastor, do you know, I just saw so-and-so out in the parking lot. They just come from the previous service, and I saw them lighting up a cigarette while they're getting into their car. I mean, that's wrong, isn't it, Pastor? Condemning this person. And my pastor said, do you know that six weeks ago he was lighting up a joint? And God's giving him victory over that now? God's working. God's working. It's a slow process. Well, we're going to eventually have victory over these things. Let's not condemn one another. Let's not judge each other. Let's pray. It's not for us to judge another person. You know, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Romans 14, verse what, 4, 3, 4. I wish Christians were more encouraging, lifting a brother or sister up that has stumbled instead of condemning them and so on. Again, verse 4, describing these certain men, <laughs> uh, apostates, false teachers, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. That's interesting. Judas telling us that these ungodly deceivers didn't take God by surprise. Well, surprise, surprise. Of course God wasn't taken by surprise. He knew they would infiltrate the church and had marked them from long ago, yes, even before the foundation of the world, he knew who they would be, and he marked them for judgment at one point. He didn't mark them to be false teachers. He didn't force them to teach false doctrine. There are some that kind of believe that. No, he knew who they would be. He knew they wouldn't repent, and he marked them for judgment. God was not taken by surprise. The question is, if God knew about them, these false teachers. Why didn't he stop them from infiltrating the church and thereby keep them from doing damage? Well, because in part, that was a responsibility, listen, he gave to us as his church, and especially to guys like me, pastors and church leaders. It's our responsibility primarily, but we can't do it alone. We need your help. Because a lot of times false teachers come in secretly looking like Christians, and I, I've heard it over the years, you know, and they're very friendly, and they're inviting you out to lunch after church, and it just you seem like this, this person's the neatest person, and boy, we're becoming good friends, and they come on over to my house this Friday night, and let's have a little dinner, and, and then here comes the false doctrine. They build the relationship, and then they kind of try to use false doctrine to get you away from the truth of God that's being proclaimed here. It's up to us as the body of Christ to keep our eyes open. No, not to go on a witch hunt and anybody who disagrees with our theology, they must be a false false prophet. Why? Because they don't agree with me on everything I believe. Well, you know, most Christians are not going to believe with you and I and everything. As long as we agree in the basics, it's all that matters, okay? Um, it's our responsibility. God gave it to us to uh, be vigilant, be watchful against, uh, against these wolves, these false teachers, right? Um, Peter said, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in what? Again, the faith. The only way to protect yourself against error, against Satan's lies, is to know God's truth, the faith. 
knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Look at Christians are suffering all over the world. Whatever you're going through, mark it down. Somebody else in some other part of the world, is, he's, he or she's going through the same thing. We're all in this together, okay? Yeah, you don't, don't get the Elijah complex. I'm the only one left, Lord. I'm the only one who loves you. Everybody else has turned against you. What did God say? Uh, don't flatter yourself, basically. I have 7,000 in Israel that has not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his image. There are faithful brothers and sisters all over the world. You may think you're the only one at times, but they're out there. And, and we need to understand that. We're all, we're all going through attacks. The devil has got the bullseye on all of our backs. He's trying to take us out. You've got to stay close to the Lord. You've got to know the word. Matthew 7.15, once again, Jesus, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Those are two of dozens we could look at, okay? You might be thinking, okay, but again, why does God allow these false teachers to exist in the first place at all? Well, the larger question is, why does God allow Satan to continue at all? I mean, aren't these false teachers working for the devil, whether they realize it or not? Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. I mean, they're working for the devil. Why does God let the devil continue? Let's read Second uh, Corinthians 11, verse 13. These people are false apostles. Well, we could plug in any false teacher, false prophet, whatever. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants, see, they're serving the devil, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. So again, why does God allow Satan to continue doing his dirty work? I mean, he isn't as strong as God, is he? Some would ask. Of course not. Satan is the creation. God is the creator. Just because unbelievers, they sometimes believe that Satan and God are equally matched that they're at odds with each other, and that the devil is as powerful as God. That is a, that, that's a lie of the devil. The devil is a created being. He reports to God to get permission to do anything he wants to do. Read Job chapter 1. We'll close with this. Why does God let Satan continue to do his dirty work and deceive? Listen, this would floor a lot of unbelievers. Because the devil is serving the purposes of God. The devil is serving the purpose. You say, what? how? God has given us free will. Now, I believe that. Some Christians don't. God has given to us free will. You can't have free will if there's only one choice. It's like having free elections. Only one candidate on the ticket, though. Not exactly, you know, a free election. God allows Satan to exist. Jesus Christ defeated the devil on Calvary's cross, vanquished principalities and powers, made an open spectacle of them, right? Triumphing over them in his cross. So why didn't God banish the devil to the lake of fire at that moment? Because the devil is serving the purposes of God. Now, halfway through the tribulation period, he's going to be kicked out of heaven. He still has access to heaven right now. Again, he reports to God, Job 1. But the Lord allows the devil to continue because he gives man an option. He gives man a choice. He allows Satan and his servants, which are false prophets, to infiltrate churches. Listen, in part to keep us sharp and vigilant. 
um, in the Old Testament when God was talking about the warfare he was going to lead his people into when they came into Canaan. Very interesting statement. I wish I would have wrote it down. It just came to my memory. He said, I'm not going to defeat the devil, excuse me, the enemy all at once. It's going to be a little by little you'll have victory. And at one point God says, because warfare, God's words, is good for you. It's good for you. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you vigilant. A soldier that has no battle to fight becomes sloppy, overweight, uh, sleeping on the job. Uh, warfare is good for us as Christians. I know it's not pleasant. It's good for us, though. It keeps us sharp, keeps us vigilant, right? But also, God allows the devil and especially his servants to continue and in infiltrate into the church because, listen, now here's another thing that Christians may not agree with. These people, he allows them to come into churches because they act like magnets, and they draw out of the church everyone who thinks like they do. And they all leave. And what's left is a pure body who all believe the truth of God because these people come in with their weird doctrines, you know, and they begin to share it, you know, and we don't even know it's happening until, you know, a bunch of people are infected. And at one point they all leave. And I used to think, Lord, that's terrible. Look at how they devastated our church. And eventually God began to show me, no, no, this is, I do this every once in a while. I allow this. Because once a church is uh, overpopulated with a lot of people who are basically drawing, sucking the spiritual life out of the church because they're not really God's people. They're terrorists. Sometimes he allows, you know, another charismatic terror to come into the body, uh, preach their little doctrines, and everybody gravitates to them. And when they leave, they all leave together. It purifies the church. So I, now I just rejoice. Lord, whatever you want to do, I, I don't like to see people leave the church, but I realize, God, the greater issue is sometimes you subtract before you multiply. I just have to, you know, keep that in, in front of me. Um, all right, we'll have to end there. We will uh, finish up verse 4 uh, next time, but I, I promise you now we're going to get into uh, the section where he begins to identify apostates old and new now there's a lot of lessons for us to learn from as jude under the inspiration of the holy spirit begins to identify these apostates and what their apostasy was we see the same things in the church today and it really helps us to guard to be able to contend earnestly for the truth of god right so we'll look at that next time god willing father we thank you lord for your word we thank you lord for your grace as we have gone through this lord that Father, for, for opening our understanding to the things you've placed here for our learning. And, and Lord, give us grace as we read your word to interpret it by your Spirit's grace properly. And we don't come away with some weird, wrong interpretation that will lead us down a path that is not good and will take us away from you. We just thank you, Lord, for your word. It's truth. And if we walk in its truth, its light, we'll never stumble in darkness. So, Lord, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.